Welcome back to the second episode of the Color of Poverty, Color of Change podcast miniseries. My name is Jesse Renata. In conversations with guests, this miniseries engages with the realities of racism faced by peoples of color and indigenous communities on this land now called Canada, particularly in the context of Ontario, and with local anti-racism action being undertaken by various groups and individuals across the province. We hope this mini-series is able to serve as a tool to provide listeners with insight into ongoing anti-racist work in the province while expanding ongoing conversations on racism, poverty, and systemic inequities in Ontario. In producing this podcast, we acknowledge that Color of Poverty, Color of Change's ongoing work is taking place within a settler colonial context on the traditional Indigenous territories of the Huron-Wendat, Haudenosaunee, and most recently the territory of the Mississaugas of the Credit River. This territory is part of the Dish with One Spoon, One Pump Belt Covenant, an agreement between the Anishinaabeg and Allied Nations and the Haudenosaunee Confederacy to peacefully share and care for the resources around the Great Lakes. Those of us who are settlers and settlers of color are committed to learning and learning about our community's complicity in ongoing settler colonialism while recognizing our work to advance social justice must center Indigenous communities and their diverse lived experiences across this land now commonly called Canada. Today, we're in Ottawa on the unceded traditional territories of the Algonquin Nation, where our three guests will share their insights into the racialization of poverty, employment equity, and Indigenous priorities when it comes to implementing an effective national anti-racism strategy. Okay, let's get into it. Hello, my name is Sunda Garziz, and I work with OCSO, the Ottawa Community Immigrant Services Organization. I work as a youth worker. Um, I'm also a migrant justice activist. I have been active in the community in Ottawa since 2013 with uh, several grassroots groups such as No One Is Illegal, Refugee Welcome, and Ottawa Sanctuary City. So I've been involved in organizing um, community events and rallies and try to also teach in to try to raise awareness around migrant justice in general but also and documentation and precariousness and status. Thank you for inviting me to the podcast. This is awesome. My name is RJ Jones. I'm Soto Cree, originally from Regina, Saskatchewan, but I've been living on Algonquin territory for the past 20 years. I'm an educator and a artist doing work mostly in sexual health, gender, and sexuality, um, but I'm really interested in, in what does um, accessibility look like in social justice movements. And Michael Kerr, I, um, going back 12, 13 years to, to the founding and launch of Color of Poverty, Color of Change, I've been involved from, from that moment. And since our launch, I've been helping to coordinate the work of Color of Poverty, Color of Change in our effort to build a, an ever more effective shared vehicle and shared voice for racial justice, education, and advocacy across the province of Ontario. And prior to that, I had also helped to coordinate uh, the, the National Anti-Racism Council of Canada during its first five years of existence back in the 2000-2005 era. Awesome. Okay, I'd like to start with the somewhat unusual question if you had to briefly explain in a few words what racism and discrimination looks like in an ottawa context to someone in another part of the country someone who isn't living here uh, to someone in vancouver or regina for example how would you do that what might you share with them so i will focus more on the in context 
um, of my experience in Ottawa as um, serv- like working in service provision or activism. I would say racism would look like many things. So first, I would say racism. I work with youth in, in school system. And um, racism could look like first when newcomers come to, to Canada and they're put in ESL classes. And it's really hard. Like a lot of our students struggle because that system doesn't fit necessarily their their need or even... It's not designed in a way where um, for somebody who doesn't speak English or doesn't speak French for that matter as their first language, uh, they're put directly to learn the language, but also they're put separately from the rest of the class and or they're put in classes where the level is way too high and teachers don't have capacity in our system to provide the the support needed for newcomer youth when they come uh, and integrate Canadian school here right away um, so for me that's a very a very like in in general systematically uh, we see a lot of our youth struggling struggling constantly until they go to college if they do and even when they go to college they're still struggling and we've been seeing a lot with the wave that came in 2016. Uh, as I worked from that time till today in Osisu, I see a lot of my youth continuously having issues around their language, but also just understanding and being able to fit in into that system. And that's a form, I would say, of systematic racism, where it's it, like there was never an effort, or um, I at least I didn't see a big effort from both school boards to... Um, come up with a new strategy. This is like a very old system of just integrating immigrant. And today there's a lot of things that change with youth that we don't, like the the current system for Canadian youth doesn't work that much anymore. So what can we say about immigrant youth who don't necessarily, who are not born here, who are not born in this system? So that create definitely, they're always in disadvantage. So for them to be able to go to university, they might not go with uh, or succeed as much. And then after finding jobs or finding it too difficult that they drop drop out of school way too early uh, and get in trouble way too early. And that will impede on the whole their whole future. So there's a lot of that in the work I do, and there, I see a lot of that in the work I do, and, and I think there's something wrong with the system rather than with the people and with the population who comes to Canada. So I would say that's one major thing that I've been seeing in my time in OCSO, where in education there's a big, big gap. RJ, what about you? I think because I'm comparing a, a racism to a context of thinking of the prairies and how... Um, the way that racism exists there for indigenous people um, is way more blatant than it is here. I think a lot of like racism that indigenous people face here is like super invisibilized. Um, and when I'm thinking of it, the way that it's invisibilized, it's it's more hidden where people they have like racial ideas of indigenous folks, but they don't act on them in the same way that it would happen like in the prairies so i think like that means it's a little more deadlier um because there are unseen consequences that tend to happen and are like justified and people think are okay because it isn't as obvious so i think again when i'm thinking of like racism in in ottawa it's very different 
Um, and a lot of that has to do with like the size of the population and the amount of like indigenous people that are in Ottawa versus like in more northern communities as well. Like Thunder Bay has like one of the highest rates of um, racism towards indigenous people, but there's also a lot of indigenous people in that space. So mm. I think that plays a big um, role in that. And also uh, because Ottawa is like very much like a government city, um, I find like indigenous people coming to Ottawa is so, like significantly like the amount of indigenous people here is like a lot uh, less than I would typically see in other cities that I think are just more closer to communities as well. And also we have like a diversity of different indigenous folks in Ottawa. It's Algonquin territory, but there's like a high you know, a population here too. And they like all the folks tend to are all like indigenous people. Um, experience like racism differently too but we're just monolithing um, indigenous to be like a, a stereotypical like Cree native person that's usually what people think indigenous is while like we have the highest population of Inuit like I had mentioned so that also affects how people are going to experience racism too because they're coming from a completely different context so it's interesting because it's like the one size fits all approach where people are just assuming we're all the same when we're not. Um, Plains natives are very different from natives over here. Uh, so it's just interesting how those things like also play an effect um, when we're talking about these things. The reason I'm asking this question, I guess, is from my own experiences living in different major cities in uh, Vancouver, Ottawa and Toronto and having experienced racism differently in these contexts through my own experiences in both systemic and overt ways, which are themselves so different than how racism operates systemically and overtly in rural settings, uh, like you mentioned, RJ, and around uh, predominantly Indigenous communities. So engaging in conversations about racism and building on anti-racism work in localized settings, these local experiences become very critical. Um, in our first episode, our guest spoke to what a national anti-racism strategy for Canada might look like and why Canada needs specific legislation to tackle systemic racism. Part of that includes addressing the connection between race and poverty. Michael, what is meant by uh, the racialization of poverty? Well, in, in some ways, we're still on that learning journey to, be, to best understand the, the, real, the real fuller meaning of that li shared lived experience and, and the different unique ways in which that reality is, is experienced by different uh, communities, whether it be different sort of indigenous communities or in different sort of communities of color. But how we've tried to sort of bring that conversation into different spaces and places is to help folks to understand um, as we hear conversations around growing inequality in, Can in Canada and Canadian society, how uh, to, to best and fully understand the nature of, the, of those growing gaps we really have to understand the key driver of race and racism and racialization and how it lives and operates differently in again in indigenous worlds and in communities of color uh, to help to explain how through um, different ways that uh, people's lives are impacted by uh, prejudice, bias, discrimination and other related forms of intolerance how uh, people's health status, how people's educational opportunities, how people's em em employment prospects, all the many different, how people's exposure to the criminal justice system, all of that impacts in ways that, that drive and help to determine uh, 
ever large, ever disproportionately large numbers of folks from those communities living in poverty. The way in which those, that layered exclusion, that layered marginalization uh, impacts people's lives. And, and in so doing, it, it, it leads to the kinds of data that we, we try to bring to the fore and try to make visible around how levels of poverty within ethno-specific and in indigenous communities is two to three, in some cases, and up to six to seven times the rate of, of white folks in terms of Canadians of European or, or, or Caucasian background and heritage. So making those kinds of racialized or color-coded inequities and disparities ever more visible, and not just to make them visible, but then to help deepen a shared understanding of, of what drives that, as I, as I was saying, in order to affect change, because it's it's understanding it, knowing it, and, and being able to, to be visible and transparent about it, but then it's acting in our local spaces and places and on a collaborative and coordinated basis on a province-wide and national basis to affect meaningful change. And just kind of with that in mind and kind of bringing perhaps a, a local focus on in, into that conversation, particularly focusing attention at the intersection of race and poverty, I'm reminded of the recent gentrification and forced eviction of the residents in uh, in the Herongate neighborhood, which is very close to where we are today. But is that something that you folks could speak to a little bit? Well, I, I won't be able to speak about the Herongate organizing per se, but I would say that what I learned in the past year about the housing crisis in Ottawa, um, and I think the Herongate neighborhood um, was started in a way started that increase of awareness around what's happening in Ottawa in terms of the housing crisis. I joined recently the board of CCOC, which is the Centertown Citizenship Housing Corporation, which is an, they offer nonprofit, it's a nonprofit housing uh, organization, but they also offer affordable housing. Uh, they are the only agency actually who is like in Ottawa is, is able to offer um, affordable housing that is not a private company, but they are, they are a nonprofit organization. And they have a really good model to do so, but they're very tiny compared to the need that we have in Ottawa currently. Um, I got, obviously I was interested to start getting involved more in the housing when I saw the Herongate neighborhood uh, getting erased. And especially when I saw a lot of my youth uh, and youth that I worked with in schools getting affected by that. So this is not just like, we're not just erasing a neighborhood. Um, we're kicking out communities who've been there for, for, for many generations even, and like people who grew up there, and also a lot of newcomer who just arrived, and they were advised to go in these areas because the way it works, also again in Canada, systematically we create precarious states and we try to continue that precariousness amongst newcomers so like they the newcomers are advised to go to live in certain areas because it's more affordable and then they they ended up being in areas where we care less about um, maintaining those neighborhoods we care less about maintaining the building the companies that um, owns or landlords that own those buildings don't care much because of who they live there and their color of skin or where they come from. So it becomes pretty, you know, it's like a triple effect where it's like one linked to the other. It's a vicious circle, I think. So when you have a newcomer family who is looking for affordable housing and they end up in those areas and then, well, suddenly we need to kick everybody out because 
uh, we need to do some development because we weren't able to maintain these houses or social housing at at a certain level that is decent for people to live in. All of this with a very failing city hall and city councillor uh, or council, not all the councillors, but a city council that is not doing well at uh, holding our city accountable in terms of um, reducing, well, I would think not just like reducing the housing crisis or not getting there, like there is no no regulation in a way. And I, as I was reading about it, I know the crisis and the housing crisis in Toronto is way worse. But one of the things I learned when I was like looking into the Heron Gate uh, disaster was that if this like something like this will never happen in Toronto, because in Toronto they had or maybe not will never happen, will like will never will happen like most likely not <laughs> because there is there's a law that protects um social housing like if you do destroy it uh you need to kind of still afford like you need to replace it and i think toronto fought for some reason like you toronto fought more for for that specific uh law to be instead at the base of the city or at the level of the city and in ottawa we didn't have that so people when they start to uh, organized and they wanted to have a lawsuit against the the developer, the the I think the landlord in in a way, they had no grounds to do that. Like they 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 can't do much because there is nothing that actually um, stop these landlord from doing that mm-hmm. on a regular basis. So I think there is a in Ottawa there is definitely a lack of awareness of our rights and to, like as tenants. And what can we do and what can we, can we not, or what can the landlord do and what can they not do? I also think there is, now that the prices are way high and like we're trying to be, you know, the city is growing as well. And like we're facing the similar problems that exists also in Toronto and bigger city as Vancouver, where the rent is going way, way up uh, at a very high speed and people can't catch up anymore. Um, now people are fighting more, obviously, because we're reaching that crisis. I do think Ottawa is very new in this field <laughs> and like we don't have a very good structure to fight um, and to hold our city accountable, especially that. Like, I think we're trying to to do our best. And like, I know the Herringate movement was a great movement. Um, and it's unfortunate that they weren't able to, it's definitely started something, I think. Um, it's unfortunate that we weren't able to save that neighborhood. However, I'm pretty sure they like that's what caught the attention of a lot of people in Ottawa to start thinking of that. And also the fact that now we are in the, cr- in the crisis of housing and homelessness. So mm-hmm. that pushed people. Yeah, and it was interesting how you mentioned about um, the forced evictions as, a, as an erasure of like the community, right? Um, and what also is erased in that process is the a lot of the the self-organizing that often falls on the community's own shoulders to kind of organize themselves or uh, provide for themselves um, in terms of the the gaps that are left by by yeah. the city or by by the province or by the country. Mm-hmm. Um, and so a lot of that, especially particularly in that community, from my own experience of seeing um, a lot of uh, social programming and, and different kinds of supports that were created mm-hmm. within the community, almost like yeah. a holistic kind of grassroots way. Mm-hmm. A lot of that is a race too, right? Um, Definitely. Picking up on that, the, uh, although I'm not familiar with the details and specifics of Herongate, uh, what, I, what I have heard and what I do know it seems to have so many echoes elsewhere across the province in terms of some of the 
conversations that we had we've have had over the years with folks in Windsor, London, Hamilton, Thunder Bay, other places around the province, how the the voices of members of communities of color, indigenous communities, uh, have been in different ways erased, we've been made invisible or, or dismissed in many different contexts mm-hmm. and places. Uh, even though at, at the same time, er, ever larger numbers of folks driven by that disproportionate exposure to poverty are ever, ever more unable to find affordable housing in, in all of those communities. Uh, and or they, they, they're being compelled to leave when there's been forced redevelopment in some cases, like in a, in a Toronto context, like Regent Park or Lawrence Heights, where these long-established existing uh, mm-hmm. public housing developments, have, have, it's been decided by the powers that be that they were going to be redeveloped mm-hmm. um, and on their terms and very little community voice in the process. Lip service paid all too often, but, but effectively little voice. Um, and the, and the and the the profound consequences for people's lives that those that that kind of an approach has, but it it adds on to that 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 systemic and structural marginalization and exclusion of community uh, gra- uh, grassroots voices, and disproportionately impacting communities of color and indigenous folks. Another point of focus for color of poverty, color of change concerns justice and policing and its relationship to race. What does that look like in the Ottawa context for Indigenous communities and peoples of color? Um, well, I would say, a- again, like this is like something maybe like somebody from Abdurrahman Abdi Coalition can speak more to it, uh, or even Somali community can speak more to it. I think what I what I would say about this is that I, I work with youth who, you know, teenager youth within between the age of uh, 15, 16 till 20, 22. And um, we do every year here in, in Yosiso offer workshops and a very substantial series of workshops on how to deal with the police because we know it's you know a big problem in our community where our youth are not safe around the f- police for sure and they don't feel safe necessarily. These are racialized youth who from the beginning they know and they don't need anybody to tell them, yeah, because they are Arab or because they are black, they're going to be, you know, stopped and re- uh, profiled, which is pretty common practice with the Ottawa police. Uh, so all we do to make sure, you know, they're somehow have, you know, have a little bit of agency and awareness about their rights is also to train them on um, how to interact with the police, how to swallow their pride and like not you know start trouble or escalate the situation which is you you i can understand why that would happen and usually things like this that end up for some of them deadly and and it's unfortunate um and this is something it's i think it's pretty hard for a lot of racialized community to even begin to see where you know where to start where to start when you do the education with youth how are we going to protect them really right um so we focus a lot on prevention and like you know how to talk about the police we have a whole workshop is like how you talk to the police just to make sure and this is very important because we we've seen situation where the youth will lose patience or like they feel discriminated against just because they were brown or black they were stopped in the street and they did nothing or they were um uh, mistaken for someone else or whatever you know all these stories 
and police have so much power like they can lie to you and they, it's within their you know their they can do whatever they want if they were to manipulate your uh, they have the right i think i learned in one of these workshops from a lawyer that a police can can tell you a fake story that didn't exist just to actually uh, intimidate and and think of mm. a youth who think like if the story was oh uh, somebody saw you going outside of that store and you stole something we have a witness or we had somebody who saw you and that youth didn't and i heard from a lawyer that actually these stories can happen quite often and police have the discretion to do to do to do that I think also this is the story of many, I think, indigenous youth that maybe RJ can talk to, but uh, it's pretty similar in a way where racial profiling in Ottawa is pretty pretty commonly practiced. And yeah, the the stories are not always um, fun to hear, but also like we heard there was this youth who was arrested and uh, he was like, he was actually tied up or like I think there's some and people were trying and this is like in the middle of a festival street festival and people we heard about it because one of our friends were was filming and we were were able to see the interaction of the police and this is in the middle of like you know June or May and it's like summer and every and all especially glow fair is like a teenager festival um and they tied him up and they charged him because I think the police touched his shoulder and the youth didn't realize that it was a mistake or something like that, I believe. I'm not sure of the story. Anyway, like he, he just like want, want to push the police a little bit, but it wasn't just like, don't touch me, obviously, as you can do to any stranger who touch you. And then the police reacted badly to that and he ended up on the floor and had to go, like they had to take him to the station. And mm-hmm. he's less than 18, so he didn't even have the right to do that because he, he needed a parent to be present or called or informed. Um, so some of the people were there to follow up and make sure. But I think it's pretty intense, you know, like the response doesn't super unnecessary, didn't have to be that way. So I only can imagine how many times these happened. And this is one of the story we we witnessed mm-hmm. a little bit, but yeah. Uh, I, I think in regards to police, one of the things that I'm finding is that there's actually such a huge mixed like response to police in a lot of like indigenous communities. It's interesting because um, when I even think back to the election, a lot of people always assume that indigenous people are going to be the ones to vote NDP or to vote liberal, but they're actually like, especially in the plains are, are super, super conservative and very pro police. So that always is something that I think about because I find there's always this um, discussion in communities where people are just like, yeah, police are here to protect us because they've totally um, eaten that narrative that these are like that super colonial narrative that we're like the police are always going to be there to protect us. But also there's this reality that there is like a, um, you know, police tend to be like picking up indigenous folks a lot more than they would or put like a lot more severe punishments on, especially a lot of indigenous folks who are homeless, um, like severe punishments for people that are also just like in the streets would in, in a way where it doesn't make any sense where you wouldn't see that happen if they weren't like indigenous people. It's just like the stigmatization of like this person is native and whether or not they're intoxicated, uh, that completely dictates and determines how that person is going to be treated. 
Uh, so like that's always something even when I'm like going out to be mindful that if I'm going out with a group of friends uh, I have to make sure I'm definitely not the most intoxicated one because I know I'll be the first one that they grab if we went to a party that um, had been busted by police which I'm we don't usually do because we're like older now and we don't even party but like (laughs) but theoretically these were things I had to think about a lot when I was younger and are still issues that with like a lot of like young folks that I've talked to but it's always like this mixed debate I find there's definitely this like over policing of indigenous folks but also um i've heard of stories that like indigenous people calling police and those police just not showing up because they know that person is native so it's like again this conversation of invisibilization and not taking indigenous people's concerns seriously when they do go to the police or being over policed so i find like in an Ottawa context that it's always going to be a mix and it depends on who you get. Um, I actually find the most chill police officers shockingly. I've like, I haven't worked with OPP often, but they wanted to do, they really wanted to work with one of the organizations I worked with. And I'm like, all right, I'll, I'll humor you just so you leave us, leave us alone. Um, I found in my time with like talking to them or spending time with them, which was definitely something I wasn't, I didn't I I was there it was an interesting experience um but I found older police officers were the ones that are like way more relaxed than younger police officers and they're the ones who are like yeah they're nicer so I find like that that informed me a lot to like tell young people that I know like usually the older ones are actually more relaxed than the younger ones and if you get approached by a younger one it's because they're trying they're trying hard in their jobs and it's it's just interesting also too when I think about um kind of similar to what Cinda mentioned earlier about the conversation of police and pride and how there's this unwillingness I find even in LGBTQ communities to recognize being racialized completely affects the way that we engage with police um I've definitely had encounters with police where um I had done nothing wrong but because I matched descriptions of other people other like native people there's just this assumption that like we're all the same um if you have like long hair because at the time I had long hair um and it's so it's interesting um this particular conversation because it looks different um depending on like community and who you are and I find like yeah a lot of indigenous women there's like almost like a hyper invisibilization where like I'll hear native it's particularly native women who are the ones who don't get responses from police um this isn't necessarily that I see this regularly happening in Ottawa I've only heard of this a couple of times um but definitely in other places uh, and um it's usually men who are like overrepresented so that's always something that's interesting um when I'm thinking of this in like a gender like analysis how might the collection of race-based data and desegregated data that shows the disproportionate impact felt by certain racialized communities over others be helpful in anti-racism work in the context of Ottawa or even more broadly outside of Ottawa? I feel like there is data that already exists around over-policing in Ottawa, and I hear it referenced, but I don't know what exactly is happening beyond like referencing the data that is actually like impacting community. I think this was specifically for the black community in Ottawa too, because there was like issues of over policing. So I have no, like I have a friend who works in this area too, and um, she or she yeah she mentioned a lot about um, like her own like personal family history around 
like over policing and she she i'm pretty sure she was the one who told me about this data but for some reason and also like a lot of people like to forget that there's actually a history that around like policing and over policing of like black bodies in ottawa specifically so it's like this interesting narrative of pretending like that stuff isn't happening and i hate that part when people like to deny that history um is like legitimate concern for like our future and we can already see that in present day um as we go along with what happened a couple of years ago like you had mentioned earlier like this is just one instance of something that will continue to reoccur unless we actually like name why these things are happening but a lot of people don't want to talk about racism um which goes back to the like the larger issue of like because we live in a colonial state and the colonial state does not want to admit that it's hard to actually acknowledge like racism is uh, gonna continue to be a thing until we actually address the issue of why these things are happening i, I think that as rj is suggesting there, there have been specific studies done and I, I think in the ottawa example the academics have been invited in people like scott wortley or, or lauren foster from university of toronto york university of who have come in to help to do some of this research to to unpack and understand and make visible uh s some of the reality of color-coded or racialized policing and, and the racial profiling that 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 it, it 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 reflects um but all too often that that kind of data gathering that kind of data collection is not being done or at least not being done on a consistent basis mm -hmm. across a range of different areas. And when we think back to that whole previous conversation around racism race, uh, racism and policing and crim criminal justice system, that just this past week, uh, here we are talking, what, what is today, January 23rd? Uh, um, that the... Um, uh, the the commissioner uh, of protection of corrections came out with yet an ever more disturbing further further expression of the the extent to which indigenous mm -hmm. peoples are ever more disproportionately reflected among those who are f federally incarcerated uh, with with the numbers now over over thirty percent of of male in, uh, people uh, in in the federal criminal justice system are indigenous mm -hmm. of course they only make up five percent of the overall Canadian population but even worse for for indigenous women where it's now up to over 43 percent of of women in federal incarceration are indigenous women so and I guess in some ways uh, we are doing better with capturing the indigenous fact and reality because of certain historical obligations that have arise out of certain odd interpretation and understanding of treaty and other obligation uh, so at least we're starting to get that data on a more consistent uh, basis, but not always as transparently as it could be and should be, and certainly not for peoples of color. Uh, so we we need these systems to be ever more transparent and consistently so, as as they attempt to introduce, as we have finally gotten the Toronto Police Services to do, as a, as an example outside of Ottawa, to as just recently announced in the past several months, their their sort of race-based data collection uh, initiative uh, with, with a, a framework for, for op operating and delivering. We've helped to inform that process as best we could, but but um, most policing services across the province don't do that and are not doing that, and we have a long way to go to get them to do it. 
And also with regards to the the collection of race-based data with police services, a lot of questions are raised as to what happens with the data and how is it collected and how is it stored, how is it analyzed, how is the ongoing reporting done with racialized communities and kind of that ongoing sustained check-in to to actually look at and be transparent about whatever structures might be in place there, right? I think there's some valuable learning that all of us can do from from allies and communities of color and so on uh, in terms of understanding how and where uh, the the OCAP principles that are that have been developed historically and and are are uh, every, every effort is made to to have have them made real in in indigenous data gathering exercises so it always being indigenous led uh, and the pro- proper protocols and 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 guidelines and protections uh, over and above the academic protocols that would apply in any kind of statistical gathering context. I, I think there's a lot that can be borrowed from that space that would be equally appropriate and applicable to communities of color. But as we do that, as, as we move forward across a whole range of public policy areas, whether it be justice and policing, whether it be education, health, uh, child welfare, like the three pilots that are underway with it, that under the provincial government uh, umbrella of of the of child welfare of education and of justice, we have to ensure that uh, again all of those protections are in place. Those guidelines are there, uh, some of which are reflected in the the, the data um, protocol d- implemented or launched uh, two years ago now by the provincial government of Ontario, the data standard, so that we can best ensure that data is collected in in a good way in a healthy way and in, in appropriate ways all, all again all of those guidelines and rules and protocols are in place to ins- to best ensure that we can try to preempt and minimize the misuse and abuse of that data because there will always be those folks out there on on the other side so to speak that will attempt to misrepresent and use that data in very um, negative and in very and an effort to reinforce stereotype yep. and other kinds of misuse and abuse. So I wanted to just shift the conversation a little bit, but keeping these this discussion in mind, the announcement of the national anti-racism strategy by the Liberal government in the lead-up to the last federal election in October 2019 lacked any mention of specific legislations, timelines, and other details, something we spoke about in our first episode. I'm curious about what local priorities for peoples of color and indigenous communities you'd hope to see when the national anti-racism strategy is finally rolled out. I would hope to see more concrete action in general in terms of really eradicating uh, or taking action against, I guess, discrimination. Like a simple one would be like if we have all these data around carding in Ottawa or all these data around police violence against uh, specific racialized communities, why don't we have more strict measures that um, work toward eradicating that over time? If we do all recognize that this is a problem we have, why why don't we come up with a strategy that actually work toward that? So for me, I think I want more concrete plan in general. I think Canada has been talking for a century on like how to, you know, we want to include more people. We want to be more diverse. We're a multicultural country. Um, we welcome diversity and welcome all of that. But then at the same time, as we speak at 
uh, I'm gonna say this wrong, but maybe you can correct me, RJ. What's what what's Wetten? What's Wetten? Um, Canada decide to send military to watch them or the RC, RCMP, and 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 I think that definitely goes against any like you know norm like if we're going toward eradicating racism if this government want to work toward that why is the rcmp there why is the military there like these people are just protesting for for their land and you're sending one of the biggest forces you have like it's very non-proportional um and very racist like this is racism this is colonialism so yeah, I mean, I don't have much hope, to be honest. Like, I'm not expecting anything from the government um, to come up with any strategy. I, I, I would hope that there is a little bit more concrete work, that all the work we've been doing and many, many organizations are doing actually lead to more pressure on, on this current government or future government to do more work. It just, it feels sometimes when we, we see things like what's happening, what's sweating, it feels like we're regressing, right? Like it feels like a little depressing, a little it's like, okay, well, we're not we're not going anywhere. Like it's the same things that goes like comes back over and over again. So I don't know. That's how I feel about it. <laughs> this, I'm not that hopeful. <laughs> Sorry. Picking up on some of the the thoughts that were shared earlier today in our Ottawa conversation and some of the priorities identified, certainly to make real as best as possible the, the possibilities of what the national anti-racism strategy can do it has to be translated into a comprehensive and uh, thoroughly laid out operational plan uh, and with that there has to be metrics there have to be things that mm -hmm. can be measured there have to be indicators there, 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 there have to be sort of moments at every step where we can gauge success in, ter in terms of as they move ever deeper into implementation of, of the of the plan as a, a a comprehensive implementation of the strategy we need we need those kinds of consistent uh, data gathering tools and mechanism so that for both transparency and with transparency our efforts at then being able to hold the government accountable to delivering on those possibilities mm -hmm. and that's certainly a consistent message across conversations that we've had elsewhere across the province and despite recommendations by community groups in the consultations uh, with the government prior to the strategy's announcement last summer. Something that seems to be missing from the initial report is any specific mention of also migrant workers and those with precarious status. So uh, what are your thoughts on that and how does systemic racism impact migrant workers and those with precarious status? I mean, <laughs> I'm not surprised that it's missing uh, at all. I think the, the way I... I've seen how this country had treated migrants overall, like over like centuries, decades, uh, who are not from European descent. We treated immigrants in Canada as always, you're either here to add something or you're not welcome here type of thing. So I think precariousness and the logic behind making all these permits so precarious or all these visa and all these like categories you have like the foreign worker temporary foreign worker program we have the caregiver uh, program that are so precarious and don't make any sense sometimes that people have to uh, they can come here uh, to work and give their labor for very shitty condition and not getting anything and on top of that you don't even get to stay 
um, permanently. You don't even get that chance because you came through a very restricting program that you're here just for labor. So we only need you just for your labor. Uh, and this is not new in Canada. And like, uh, I get, you know, frustrated when we talk about these kind of things because it's just like, there's so many things that Canada was very good at hiding in my 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 perspective as I learned more about how the policy worked and how these programs still exist under this government who had promised or would use a lot of you know his PR to talk about oh we're welcoming all these refugees from Syria and from Iraq and these are like all these many people and all these success stories but at the same time why don't you stop these programs these programs are bringing you so much money in this country uh, through very cheap labor and very unsafe labor for these people and then you're sending them back um, and you don't want to regulate their situation you don't want to make it um, can continuous like they can't stay here what I know about the temporary foreign program is like if you're part of that program it will be super hard for you to gain permanent residency or citizenship eventually you're going to be coming every season to work and then you have to go back to your country. These are the condition. For the caregiver program, it's very similar. You do a four in, four out, they call it. A rule, which is like you come to Canada for four years and you work as a caregiver for a family here, and then four years you have to leave this country. So I think I'm not surprised that these are missing from from any report or like or even that the Canadian don't necessarily know about it right like it's not something that a lot of people would know uh, just because this government as previous government they do very good work at hiding that in my opinion and like just talking about how easy it is to immigrate to Canada I'm an immigrant in Canada I came in 2013 and I believe that Canada was the country to go to right like I believe that I want to go to Canada. It's easy to immigrate there. I'm still not citizen here. It's been seven years. But also, I think I'm one of the privileged one, one of the lucky one to be here as a, you know, I came as a student and then I applied for all these hoops to get here, to get to the permanent residency, which cost me quite a bit of money and time. And now I just need to get the citizenship because if I go back home now, then you know, my whole family wasted so much money for nothing. And I think, I think each, you know, each permit has its thing. Like there is these very precarious status, but then when you come as an international student, you're just a money, a money bag. You're like, you're just there to spend money. And like, after that, if we don't want to renew your visa or they make it super hard for a lot of international students to, to renew their visa on a, a, a more permanent level, um, and it takes them so long to get to the citizenship, then, you know, you by the time I get my citizenship, I probably spend 10 years in Canada, right? And and by the time I get there, it's just, you built your network here. I think there is another thing we always tend to not talk about. Also, maybe part of it is we don't know, or part of it we don't have the necessary data or information always is uh, immigration detention in Canada. And... Um, I, I've been doing this work in Canada, at least, of like working with undocumented people for quite some time. Um, and there is, it's very interesting because, well, obviously, there's a lot of undocumented people and stateless people in Canada, which usually it doesn't, it doesn't have to be that way or also it doesn't make any sense 
if we think about it even from an economical perspective that these people uh, there is, I think, in 2014, and this is an easy statistic to get all the time, but in 2014, based on the source of uh, Never Home, which is a website that tried to document as much as I can um, and documentation and precariousness in Canada, and they came up with the statistic of 300,000 uh, persons living in Canada in 2014 were undocumented, so they didn't have any document, but they've been living here for over 10 years. So it's not that they just arrived and they just overstayed their visa and they became undocumented. These are people who built lives here who have been working and contributing to the society economically uh, and in their community. They've been co building community, adding to the community, but have been living in fear this whole time because they can't access basic services. And the minute they do and somebody report them, then it's detention center. Our detention center in Canada is indefinite. It's still indefinite. We, we've been talking a lot about the U.S. and how shitty the U.S. has been in the last year. Um, one other thing I learned about the U.S. recently, and I was very surprised that this has happened in those conditions. And in Canada, we don't even know we have indefinite, indefinite detention. Is that even the U.S. that separating families and incarcerating ki kids, they ended up voting to pass a law to make it the the detention is not longer than 90 days even the u.s had passed the law recently and in canada we don't have this and we do incarcerate kids we have uh, over like approximately about 800 uh, children in incarceration at all time and this is the kids who've been with their families who ended up being incarcerated with their families because they're undocumented and like I understand, like there's a lot, there's a lot. Obviously, we try to hide for that reason, and it's really hard for people to access this information unless you're in it and you're trying to, to, um, to fight for that. Or the migrants themselves, who their story um, matters in this case, because they're the one who are raising awareness. They're the the immigration detention network in Ontario has a quite a bit organized group um, that of of people in detention who are organizing to share their voices to the outside world through a phone line that we help organize. Um, if they're going to think about this in their strategy, I'm not sure. Yeah. <laughs> this seems to be a system that still brings quite a bit of benefit to the Canadian economy, right? Like this is a system that continue to contribute to that, even if it's at the cost of thousands of people's life. And what, one additional thought, to what Cindy said is that those multiple categories of immigration status or ever, ever more vulnerable types of status, as they can be thought of as, as money bags, as you characterize them, they are at the same time very convenient punching bags at the same at, at one and the same time because they, they are then, because of the, the vulnerable nature of their status, they, they, they can be then set up and offered up in, in some ways strategically as fodder for political purposes and be and become targets by the white supremacists and other anti-immigrant uh, folks that are, that are very real and present in our society as targets for, for, for their anger, for, for their fears, for their anxieties in terms of their felt vulnerability and the blame being then laid on these various categories of vulnerable newcomer or worker uh, as the reasons why their, their life is ever more imperiled. Uh, when in fact we know that that's that's not the case, but they are conv very convenient as a target for that kind of purpose.
So how do you think that Ottawa being the federal capital impacts or changes the way that racism might be felt, uh, experienced and engaged with, particularly given it is the institutional epicenter of the colonial settler state? What does this mean for anti-Indigenous racism and organizing, for example? This is a very good question. And I, my my initial answer to it is that it's not, <laughs> right? It's like, it's the federal, it's the capital, but Ottawa... In my experience, I feel like people in BC have been fighting way more fiercely in terms when they when it comes to indigenous um, anti-indigenous racism and like um, protection of their land and 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 not to say that in Ottawa we didn't you know we we have nothing it just it, it it seems to be the center because our federal government is here and this is at the center of all issue all the ministries are here. But at the same time, it's almost like that strategy of people who live in the city work in the government. Majority of them work in the government or nonprofit world. And we're very consumed by that very systematic way. So even our rallies are during our lunch hours. And I don't know, it's a silly example, but I think it's like a very, you know, appealing example in the sense where uh, if you walk in Ottawa downtown during the weekend, you don't find anybody. <laughs> and so when you do rallies in the weekend, for example, nobody will show up to them. And it doesn't matter whether it's like because of people are might be dying in Wet'suwet'en and there's an imminent threat on them and we can't have the information. It doesn't matter at the end of the day because you just you finish your nine to five job that's all you can do so I, I found it a very interesting just like image of ottawa is like yes with our center we're the center but at the same time that resistance and those movement there they should be loud and like telling our government to stop doing what they're doing in terms of like racialization or sorry in terms of you know uh violence against indigenous people or violence against black people and immigrants it's, it gets really hard to organize in Ottawa. That's that's my have been my experience in general. Um, at the same time, yes, I would say Ottawa is still the center of all these institutions. And if we want to make a change, we need to get involved and try to push and try to to change things. So there is quite a bit of things that happen that I always hear about. It's like people trying to change things from within and uh, getting within the system and changing things or trying to push more um, and passing more resolution and, you know, like trying to do that work, which could be effective. However, it takes time and it's not an urgency work, right? Like it's not for me when I think of racism, when I think of anti-indigenous raci racism, it's always an urgency. This country has been in this for over 500 years. This is an urgent matter always. We don't need you know, like people to do a blockade to think, oh, now we have to wake up and help uh, or stand up with the people who are at the front line. I, I sound a little bitter, but like, I don't think we're doing enough, especially in Ottawa. We're not doing enough to take advantage of the fact that everything is here and we can push and we can put pressure hmm. again. Like I'm not speaking of all about all the movement. I'm just speaking of my experience as a citizen in, in, in Ottawa and what I've been involved in, it gets really hard to mobilize people. It gets really hard to get people to care uh, unless there is momentum. And these moments are really small. Our winter is very long, which <laughs> impede on organizing. 
So yeah, there is a lot of things. But at the same time, you know, like I also acknowledge the power that that the city could have if we we were able to come together. I think I work in the sector. I think we try to always figure out the ways how can we bring all these organizations together. You know, be stronger in number. Like in the nonprofit world, is a bit hard because of lack of capacity and funding and a lot of things that we rely on. But there is power in that, and I think we need to. St- still continue to figure out how to bring people in Ottawa to care more and to to get involved. I think that's the idea. It's like you get involved, you take action because everything is here. The core institutions are are here and we can put pressure on this government. I, I think that's where the, the promise and the possibility lies as far as certainly from an outside of Ottawa perspective uh, that given that it is the at least the political epicenter at a national level in Canada that that there, there are opportunities there uh, to be mo- much more effective at engaging with that machinery, with the various relevant institutions and uh, departments of federal government and so on, to be more effective at bringing a racial justice agenda in, in creative ways into those spaces and places and bringing about different kinds of needed change. Two, two of the challenges that we've long felt uh, and ex- experienced is that, although it's certainly changing and evolving now, that in the same way that as elsewhere across the country, certainly elsewhere all across the province of Ontario, is that systematic denial and dismissal and uh, ways of ignoring and we- sweeping under the carpet the, the very reality of racialized inequality mm-hmm. and racism and ho- how it ex- gets expressed in people's lives. And certainly that's been true in Ottawa as well, in terms of how, how systems and structures and institutions and orders of government, whether municipal and, and relevant provincial and federal ways of dismissing and denying historically. Mm-hmm. So that that's still in some ways still very real. And, and the other one is, is the fact that the, um, the challenge that we've always had to face whenever we've tried to be a participant in Ottawa-led or initiated uh, consultations ar- around relevant issues and realities, that all too often given that the federal government as that federal epicenter, as they organize different consultation programs and opportunities to engage with with community representatives, they draw exclusively from local folks. Mm. And a lot of the folks they choose are, are mm. to say the least, uh, unrepresentative of the, the folks that should be at those tables, mm-hmm. when, especially when it comes to racialized inequality and racism in, across a whole range of public policy areas. So we're constantly having to fight to to insert ourselves into those conversations because they sort of cherry pick from whoever exists locally in the Ottawa area just by virtue of the fact that that, that organization happens to be headquartered there or here. Uh, strategically, of course, because whatever the mandate is, it makes sense for them to be in Ottawa, but that doesn't also then make sense for them to be the spokesperson for communities of color or Indigenous folks, and less so in the case of Indigenous folks because a lot of... Lo- Powerful voices are also Ottawa-based in different kinds of ways, but much certainly the case with communities of color is that somehow these mainstream institutions and spokespersons on behalf of somehow be, then become the voice of mm. communities of color. Mm. So you're constantly having to fight against that as, as well, that tendency of federal government government actors sort of engaging in that local conversation and, and interpreting that and translating that into national consultation. Okay, so just to kind of... Um and on an uplifting type of note, I know we've had a conversation 
dealing with a lot of heavy issues and topics and a lot of, I guess, frustrations around implementation and lack of implementation possibly in terms of the federal strategy, but also just in our day-to-day work, seeing a lot of gaps that persist. But in terms of uh, moving forward and next steps, do you have any parting words of hope and resistance? I mean, I have hope and resistance all the time. (laughs) That's why (laughs) we're still here and doing this work. And I think that's where the hope also is, right? Like the hope and resistance is to continue even though the situation is really bad. What I learned working with youth for the last uh, three, four years now is that if you can change one person's life, it's success, right? Like you're successful that way. Um, So when I work with youth, if I can get one youth or to get to university or to get to college after thinking that they're not good enough or college university are not for them, that's for me a big success all the time because that could change their life, open multiple doors that um, uh, could help a lot with their future. Same thing that I also see as fighting against discrimination, racism, and uh, for migrant justice, for migrants or immigrants to be recognized and treated the same and like valued as much as any other citizen in Canada for decolonization, for recognizing indigenous people to the fullest and their rights to their land and their rights to sovereignty. If they're not fighting in the front line, our life is at, at stake as well because they're fighting against big corporation that... Uh, they might just fighting for their land, but they're not fighting for just that. They're fighting f- against the destruction of our planet, right? Like that's uh, another conversation that's super linked to what's happening today. Like as long as long as long we're here, as long people in the front line are willing to give their lives, obviously there's hope and resistance. And I think my departing word is that I would like to see more people joining the front line, right? Like it's not just a specific community. Racism doesn't just affect racialized folks it can affect everybody this is the responsibility of everybody this is not just the responsibility of racialized folks this is the responsibility of everybody who is contributing in this country to maintain a system like a settler colonial system that we maintain today when indigenous people are fighting it's our responsibility to stand with them we live in this land which is their land and they're trying to protect and without without that we're we're not here right like and it's our responsibility like i don't see it any other way and i i i am very much hopeful as well because i think sometimes we get too caught up in this in the moment and in the immediate and we lose sight of the what what's that all too cliched quote from Martin Luther King Jr. given I guess that, that his anniversary has just passed that the arc of history bends towards justice or something to that effect. I, I very much uh, agree with that understanding. And if we even look back over the twelve plus year history of color of poverty, color of change, we've made gains. We've we've achieved mm-hmm. at a federal level, at a provincial level. We've achieved a, a anti-racism directorate provincially. We've got a data standard in place to help move the yardsticks across three pilot ministries, child welfare, education, justice. Uh, we've got the federal government to, to reboot their their standing obligation to have a, an action plan against racism in process, but we're contributing to and members of our network and others of a like spirit, like mind. So there's a lot in process, a lot more can be done, needs to be done, should be done. But it's up to all of us to help make see that happen down uh, in in future moments uh, as we move forward. 
uh, but, but I see a lot of younger folks in particular that, that are ever more aware, ever more conscious, and ever more engaged. And one has to be hopeful about that, about those future prospects, given the extent to which that's true. I think one of the things when I'm thinking of uh, what are ways that we can move forward, I, I want to acknowledge that there are a lot of uh, diverse communities that I feel have been intentionally separated through um, the government not putting funds into pr- uh, essentially creating like bridging abilities between like indigenous folks and migrants and I think that um, especially in this context of like looking um, for ways to move forward there needs to be more uh, solidarity between different communities because I see a lot of isolation that happens between both or there's always like comparison of issues instead of just accepting like actually all of our communities go through um, differences and and they go through different types of systematic violences why can't we center that experience instead of trying to be uh, quote-unquote what what the government wants us to look as as Canadians so I think the more that we um, really take a lot of self-reflection and understanding why we have biases as very different people and a lot of that is shaped by um, this idea of what Canadian identity is, um, we can overcome this, yeah, the separation and really kind of bring different communities together. And I think that's what would uh, help all of us the most when combating racial discrimination. Thank you to our guests, RJ Jones, Cindy Garziz, and Michael Kerr, and to our listeners. This is the second episode in a mini-series that will address topics like the relationship between race and poverty, employment equity, and how disaggregated data and race-based data collection are among some of the tools that can be used to push back against systemic racism. Keep an eye out for new episodes coming soon as we speak with guests in different cities across Ontario. This podcast is made possible by funding from the Department of Canadian Heritage. For more information, check us out online at colorofpoverty.ca. Until next time, I'm Jesse Renata. Thanks for listening.